This evening, I'm going to talk about a disease uh, which is very common, is, as we'll go through, very serious. Uh, and some people in the audience will have diabetes. All of you will know people who've got diabetes, whether they've told you or not. This is a disease that is very common indeed. And it's a disease which, at the moment, around the world, is increasing. Most of the areas I've talked about up to this point have been diseases where things are going the right way. You could argue uh, in diabetes that things are going the wrong way, though for reasons I'll come on to, in fact, uh, it's a rather more mixed picture than that, fortunately. Diabetes is, is an old disease. It's not a disease uh, just of the modern era. Uh, the first reasonably uh, clear description of it goes back to uh, 1552 BC uh, from the Egyptians, uh, and there were other descriptions of a disease that was probably diabetes where, for example, people's urine attracted ants because of the sugar in it. Uh, probably the most uh, colourful description of untreated diabetes uh, was by Aratius in 150 AD who described the melting of flesh into urine. And the early diagnosis actually involved tasting urine. A link with um, exercise and diet was made very early on, although to be fair, virtually every disease was linked with exercise and diet at that stage because there wasn't much else to do. So uh, I think we probably should not overinterpret that. And there was a recognition that there were two types of diabetes at least uh, as, uh, as early as about 1770s. In one group, there were a group of people who got the symptoms of diabetes, which we'll come on to, and they died really very soon after that. And this is what we would call type 1 diabetes. And in the second, survival was quite a lot longer uh, and diet might help. And there were good uh, evidence of this, particularly during war, in fact. And this is what we would call type 2 diabetes. Now, we don't know how much diabetes there was in previous eras because the tests are biochemical tests, which we'll come on to. But it seems very likely that the amount of type 2 diabetes, which is linked with uh, particularly uh, obesity and uh, being overweight was much lower in historical eras when this college was founded and really until relatively recently. And I've put on this a graph looking at sugar consumption in kilograms per individual. The white uh, um, uh, dots are the UK, black dots are the USA. And what you can see is that significant amounts of sugar consumption uh, did not really start until about the 1850s and didn't properly take on uh, until to take off until the beginning of the last century. So during that era, it is likely that diabetes, which is not driven just by sugar, but sugar is a major uh, part of what uh, leads to obesity, uh, was really pretty rare in terms of type 2 diabetes at that stage. It is likely, however, that type 1 diabetes has been uh, roughly the same rate all the way through history. Now, there are some important scientific milestones and the first one, probably, is the description of what is called the Islets of Langerhans, done by Paul Langerhans, a doctoral student. And he described these cells, these clear cells in the pancreas, which are still called the Islets of Langerhans after him. Uh, Twenty years later, uh, two scientists showed that if you remove the pancreas from a dog, the dog would go on to get very classical diabetes. And that was the first real clear uh, link between the pancreas a gland in the, uh, in the abdomen, uh, and diabetes. The breakthrough, however, uh, was in 1922, and just the period leading up to this. So this is less than 100 years ago. And a group of four Canadian scientists, um, Banting, Best, McLeod and Collip, 
extracted and then purified insulin. And insulin is the key drug in the treatment of severe diabetes. And we'll come to it, back to insulin lots and lots of times. And they gave it to a child, uh, Leonard Thompson, then aged 14, who was lapsing in and out of diabetic coma and who undoubtedly would have died without this, this treatment. Thompson, the first person to be treated for what was up to that point in time a universally fatal disease, type 1 diabetes, went on to live another 13 years, which in that era was not an unreasonable period of time, in fact, to live. And Banting and McLeod, uh, entirely justifiably, uh, were awarded the Nobel Prize and shared it with their co-workers uh, for one of the great medical discoveries uh, of history. Now, I cannot stress too much that diabetes is common. An estimated 4.3 million people in the UK are living with diabetes, and around 3.5 million of them are diagnosed, meaning that some of them are not diagnosed, uh, but are uh, out uh, living uh, their lives. And globally, over 400 million cases uh, of diabetes are, are thought to be there by the World Health Organization. So this is a very common disease. And it happens in absolutely all walks of life. And the second thing I would like to stress is that most people with diabetes go on to live for long periods and often for a very, very full, uh, full and long life, a very normal and productive life not defined by their diabetes. I've uh, illustrated this here uh, with four famous people, two from uh, the arts, one from sports and one from uh, politics, uh, all of whom have talked about their diabetes. This is not breaking any medical confidences uh, and all of whom are clearly people at the absolute top of their game. Uh, in each of uh, their areas of, of uh, influence. So this is not a disease for those who actually acquire the diagnosis where you think, actually, this is the end of my life as a sports person, as a scientist, as a teacher, uh, as a politician, as an actor. But diabetes has undoubtedly been steadily rising, ju not just in the UK, but globally over quite a long period of time. And this is both uh, in total numbers and as a proportion of the amount of disease that is, is here in the UK. This is an international study, the Global Burden of Disease Study. And what that shows is that since uh, 1990, so uh, over a relatively short period of time, diabetes has gone from the 14th most common to the 8th most common cause of morbidity, which is ill health. And that is a combination of the fact diabetes is going up and that other causes of diabetes are going down. Uh, so other causes of disease are going down, meaning that proportionately, diabetes is becoming more important. So this is a problem we have to take very seriously. It's very common, as we'll come on to, it is very severe, if not treated properly, but it can be treated properly, uh, and it is rising uh, as a proportion and in absolute numbers in this country and many countries around the world. Now, a little bit of the physiology, and some of this for you, for many of you, will be going back to your uh, days at school. Uh, some of you, it won't. Um, the physiology of diabetes and glucose control is complicated, but the essence of it is very simple. The body needs to keep glucose, the key sugar that we have circulating in our, bloods, our blood, within a relatively narrow range. If you have too much glucose circulating, you get the problems of diabetes that we'll be coming on to later in the talk. If you have too little diabetes circulating, 
all the vital organs of the body, in particular the brain, but also kidneys and many other organs, start to malfunction. And if you have low glucose for too long, it is extremely dangerous. And this is, in fact, one of the major hazards of the treatment of diabetes. So too much diabetes, bad. Too little diabetes, bad. What you want is just right. It's like Goldilocks. The way that this is controlled, uh, and the main bit that actually is relevant to diabetes, is that the pancreas, um, which is the gland in the abdomen which, cause, which actually controls uh, glucose primarily, um, has some cells, these beta cells, in the islets that we talked about earlier on. And when the um, blood sugar goes too high, they produce the, uh, the hormone um, uh, uh, insulin, and the insulin then communicates with cells throughout the body, telling them to go and store their blood, so store, store the uh, energy, store the glucose in different ways. Uh, it's in the liver. It's stored in a, uh, in a form which you can actually get hold of really quite quickly. It's stored in fat cells, in fat, obviously. It's stored in muscle, where it often leads to uh, build-up of muscle, uh, and so on. So the, the, the response of the body to insulin... Uh, is to store glucose and therefore pull the glucose level down in the blood. There are other bits of the system, but that's the key one for, the, for understanding diabetes. Now, I've talked about these two different types of diabetes, and I think it's important to understand that although they do many of the same things, they are two very different diseases. And my guess would be that if we looked over time, we'll probably stop calling them two diseases and see them as multiple diseases, but they are broadly two disease types. The first uh, is what's called type 1 diabetes, and it's around 10% of diabetes these days, would have been more historically. And in this, uh, remember that the pancreas produces the insulin from the beta cells. And in type 1 diabetes, these at an early stage of life usually, often in childhood or in early adulthood, start to die off. And we think that this is probably an autoimmune disease. And so you move from a situation, you've got these cells which respond to glucose by producing insulin, and little by little they die out, till you get to the point there's almost no insulin or no insulin at all. That is type 1 diabetes. The body itself responds to insulin absolutely fine. So the problem is no insulin because there are no cells to produce it in type 1 diabetes. Once those cells have gone, they stay gone. And uh, obviously we're looking in science to try and improve on that and I'll come back to that at the end of the talk. Then you have type 2 diabetes... And in type 2 diabetes, the pancreas does produce insulin, although it may, may produce less insulin than is needed. But the body also responds abnormally to this, this insulin, and it doesn't reduce the glucose as much as it should, given the uh, insulin stimulation it's got. So either too little insulin, uh, body not responding, what's called insulin resistance, or a combination of both. But the effect, again, is that glucose goes up. So the end result is the same irrespective of the cause. Now, if you look at the UK, and this would be typical for most uh, developed countries, the age structure of type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes are very different. This is the age structure for type 1 diabetes, and each of these is an age band, a five-year age band, going all the way up uh, to old age. And what you can see is that it comes on relatively early in life, and then will stay with people right till towards the end of their life. 
In type 2 diabetes, young people rarely get type 2 diabetes, although it does occasionally happen. It tends to come on in middle age or later. And then again, in most people, it stays, although not in absolutely all, as we'll come back to. So very different age structure, a different basis in terms of the physiology. And then there's a third form of diabetes, which I'm not going to talk about very much, but I think it is important, which is called gestational diabetes. And this is what happens in people who are pregnant, who don't normally have diabetes. But when they're pregnant, around 5% of people uh, will go on to get diabetes during the period they're pregnant, usually in the second and third trimesters. And it usually resolves after the child is born. But importantly... Uh, there's about a seven times increased risk of those ladies subsequently developing type 2 diabetes later in their life. So having this is a problem during the pregnancy, but it also is a marker that uh, people could go on to get diabetes, and it's certainly a suggestion that people should uh, watch their weight really very carefully. And additionally, uh, diabetes in people going into pregnancy is increasing all the time at the moment. And that's, again, for two reasons. Partly because people are surviving better with diabetes, there's more, more diabetes, but also because uh, people are, are accepting that diabetes is a risk that can be managed through pregnancy, although it is dangerous in pregnancy. And people who are pregnant with diabetes tend to be monitored very closely. So three forms of diabetes, type 1, type 2, and gestational, slightly different uh, diseases. When people get the diagnosis of diabetes, uh, obviously their first worry is that this is the end of their working or uh, enjoyable life, and the answer clearly is absolutely not. One of the second worries for many people is, will I pass this on to my children? Is this a genetic problem? And the answer is yes, a bit, but not in the way that is normally understood by uh, most people. So 85% of people who've got diabetes do not have a first degree relative, an immediate family member, who, has a, who is affected. So on that score, you could say not a very strong association. But on the other hand, if you do have someone with type 1 diabetes, your risk is about 15 times higher from a very low base uh, than it would be if you did not have one. And so what this means is that if you have a mother who's got type 1 diabetes, your chance of going on to get type 1 diabetes is about three, 2 to 3 percent. And if your father has diabetes, it's slightly higher than that, 6 to 9%. If both of them have type 1 diabetes, then uh, around 30% go on. So there clearly is a genetic link. And if you've got identical twins, there's somewhere between a 30 and 70% chance that if one of them gets diabetes, the other will get diabetes. So what that tells you is not an immediate inheritance. Most people who've got diabetes, uh, their children will not have diabetes by quite some distance. There is a genetic uh, link, but clearly it is not completely genetic, because if it was identical, twins would both get diabetes. So there is some genes and there is some environment for type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, uh, a much less clear link. It certainly clusters in families, but it's a complicated relationship. It's between two and six times more likely that you will have type 2 diabetes if you've got a family member with it. But this may not all be genes. Families all tend to live together, fairly obviously, eat together, behave similarly, so behavioural elements may well also explain why there's clustering in families. So it probably is some combination of genes uh, and behaviours. A broad group, which is important to understand have an increased risk, is different ethnic groups. And here in the UK, uh, we're fortunate to have several ethnic groups and they have different rates of diabetes. 
If you look at childhood type 2 diabetes, and this is type 2 diabetes we're talking about, uh, not type 1, uh, children of Asian origin uh, or are roughly nine times more likely to have type 2 diabetes than their white counterparts, but this is from a very, very low risk. And children of African heritage, roughly six times more likely. That's a, that's a rare disease. But in, in, in adulthood, South Asian and people of African heritage, and by heritage I mean include people who, for example, uh, from the Caribbean but have uh, African uh, genes, are uh, more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, roughly two to four times as more likely, Middle East uh, similarly. And they're also at higher risk of gestational diabetes. So some genetic link and some ethnic link in the population. And so looking here in London, where Gresham College is based, uh, there are significant differences at every age group between different uh, how common diabetes is in different ethnic groups. So much lower rates in people of uh, white ethnic uh, origin uh, than people of uh, African origin uh, or Afro-Caribbean origin and South Asian origin. So a very strong link. And this is part of the reason why people of South Asian origin, for example, have higher rates of heart attack and stroke, uh, which is a major risk. And most people who work in the NHS uh, recognise that. Now, other than these um, broad genetic issues, the major risk for type 2 diabetes is being overweight or obese. Uh, and current estimates are that between 80 and 85% of type 2 diabetes is accounted for by people being overweight or obese. And this increases with level of deprivation in society, socioeconomic status, as it's often called, which is different from type 1 diabetes, where there really is very little de deprivation uh, uh, association. Interestingly and importantly, where people sometimes say, well, maybe that's just because what causes obesity, what causes diabetes are very, have some similarities, but they're not linked. When people with type 2 diabetes lose weight, many of them will have their blood sugar go down and some indeed may move back to a situation where they do not have diabetes. So the link, I think, is pretty clearly causal in many cases, not uh, in all. And if you look at trends in diabetes, and I've used US data here, most of the increase over time is in those with a significant high body mass index. So these are people who would conventionally be termed obese, although I don't find the term terribly helpful. And there's a clear grade gradation between people who are normal weight, overweight and obese by how common diabetes type 2 is. So obesity and type 2 diabetes very heavily associated. Now, because of that, in part, the prevalence, that is how common type 2 diabetes is, has ridden, risen very rapidly from the 1960s through to now. And there are, this is, uh, these are estimates from 2009, and I've deliberately chosen 2009 because, in fact, what's happened isn't exactly what was projected to happen. But we saw a very significant increase in the number of patients in the UK who had type 2 diabetes, from really very small numbers uh, in, in relative to now, uh, down in 1960, uh, through to substantial numbers uh, 10 years ago. Now, there are three possible reasons for seeing this. And in fact, the, the reality is that all three of them are important. The first is there has been rising obesity over that time. And I'm going to come on to that at the end of this talk when I'm talking about what we can do about it. The second is that there have been undoubtedly changes in uh, medical practice 
and changes in the way that people di uh, diagnose diabetes. Uh, and I'm glad, you know, the good thing is that more people with diabetes are being picked up by their GPs or by doctors and nurses in the system. But the third reason, which is also important, is that survival is better. So people who actually have diabetes are living longer and therefore they are contributing more to society, but they're also contributing more to the total number of people who have diabetes. And that last one, I think, is often underestimated. And I'm going to show some data from the last few years to demonstrate that this is actually really important. What's happened to obesity over the last, uh, over the, in the UK? Well, over the last two decades, it's risen from about 15% to 26%, um, depending on gender, slight variation, but that's, that's overall uh, the numbers. But it's been broadly stable, actually, over the last few years. You wouldn't believe that if you read the newspapers, but in fact, the increase in obesity has actually levelled off over the last short uh, few years. Doesn't mean that'll continue. Obviously, we, continue, we worry uh, that it'll, it'll continue to increase over time. What's happened to prevalence, that's how many people have got diabetes, and incidence, that's how many new cases of diabetes there are. If you look at the prevalence numbers, it looks pretty scary. The number of cases of diabetes in every age group, the uh, lower ones of the lowest age group, right up to uh, people who are over 75, has been increasing. But actually, if you look at the incidence, the number of people who've got new diagnoses of, di of diabetes, they are in fact going down. Slightly, but they are going down. And if you look uh, across all the countries of the United Kingdom, this pattern is repeated. These, for example, are data from Scotland. And here I'm cutting it slightly differently, not by age, but here by deprivation index. And what you can see uh, is that particularly uh, in, uh, in women, there has been a clear trend towards the new cases of diabetes actually going down over time. And on the other side, if you look at the mortality from diabetes, how many people are dying, there is, again, really clear evidence, and I'll show it from multiple angles, that mortality rates in people who've got diabetes are dropping really quite substantially year on year. So the incidence, the mortality rates, fell from about 319 per 100, about per 10,000 people, person years at risk, which is just a measure, down to about 216 uh, over the period 2004 to 2014. That's just over a decade. That's a substantial reduction in mortality. The incidence, which is the new cases, have either stayed flat or slightly fallen, but the prevalence has gone up, and that's because these people are surviving. So actually, the increase in diabetes is partially good news. It's because of better survival among people who've got diabetes. Now I'd, now I'd like to talk a bit about uh, diabetes, and this is aimed in particular at people who've had a recent diagnosis of diabetes or know someone who has, and they just want to understand a few of the basics. For those, for those who've lived with diabetes uh, for many years, this will be very familiar stuff. Untreated diabetes. So this is before you treat it, and this is true whether you're talking about type 1 or type 2, although type 1 comes on much more rapidly and dramatically. The symptoms uh, include going to pass urine frequently with thirst, just passing urine without thirst usually has other causes, tiredness, weight loss, skin infections, thrush that you're not expecting, and de de delayed wound healing. Most people who have one of these... Uh, 
probably doesn't have diabetes, but if you do have one of these symptoms, you should get yourself checked out because this is an early sign of potentially of diabetes, and if so, you want to pick it up quickly. In untreated diabetes, uh, there are also some emergency presentations where people actually turn up at hospital not with these relatively minor, although in the long-term serious symptoms, but really life-threateningly ill. And there are two in particular it's worth being aware of. The first of which is called diabetic ketoacidosis, shortened to DKA. Uh, this is in almost always in type 1 diabetes, and it's, it's usually, but not always, in people who haven't been diagnosed. So the first time they know they got diabetes is when they start to get very, very ill indeed, rush to hospital, and people discover they've got this. And what happens is their blood glucose, because they've got almost no insulin, goes really, really high, and... Uh, additionally, some chemicals which are quite dangerous called ketones build up on the, bo- the, the, the body and the blood becomes acidic. This combination is extremely dangerous and untreated, they will lapse into coma and untreated in coma, they will go on to die relatively quickly. This is a very serious medical emergency. There is an equivalent thing which you can get much less commonly in type 2 diabetes, or type 1 uh, diabetes uh, sufferers can also have it, uh, and that's where you have a very high, very life-threateningly high level of glucose, multiples of the normal glucose level, uh, but without um, ketones and usually without acid. And uh, this is usually triggered by illness or infection. So these are the two emergencies which people who work in in accident emergency and uh, acute medicine will see uh, relatively commonly. Now, what prevents that, and the key to treatment of type 1 diabetes and some people with type 2 diabetes, is insulin. It was the first drug, and it's the most important drug. It is, very simply, uh, the actual cause of the diabetes is not having enough insulin, and you just replace it. And the key uh, thing with insulin was, firstly, multiple injections of short-acting insulin had to be used. And then uh, scientists relatively early discovered ways of making these long-acting. So you could have short-acting insulin, which you could give during mealtimes or around mealtimes, and you could give long-acting insulin, which would cover you for the rest of the day. And the aim of this was to keep your blood glucose as normal as possible. You can give it by injection, by what's called a pen, which you'll see, many of you will have seen friends doing this around their uh, mealtimes, uh, and you can give it also by a pump, and increasingly I think that is the way much insulin will be given. The thing you have to be careful of is either not giving the insulin, in which case the blood glucose goes too high, or if people give too much insulin for the amount that they're uh, eating, their blood glucose can go too low, and they can lapse into coma because their, gluco- their, their brain is being... Uh, starved of glucose. If someone's diabetic and they lapse into uh, coma or start becoming very drowsy, one of the first things you just think about is, are they short on sugar? Uh, And you should replace that as a matter of uh, urgency. If you look at what happens to insulin through the day, it mirrors to some degree what happens to glucose through the day. So the red line is the glucose through the day, uh, and the blue line is the insulin levels. And what we're trying to do when we're using a combination of short-acting and long-acting insulin is to mimic what happens naturally as closely as we can. Now, we can't get absolutely perfectly to match what would happen if the pancreas was happening normally. And one of the main things we're trying to do as we'll come on to with some of the more modern ways of delivering insulin, is to get much closer to natural 
levels of insulin through the day, which includes for insulin an oscillation that happens up and down over relatively short periods of time to stop the cells of the body becoming uh, too used to it. But insulin is not the only form of treatment, and for people who've got type 2 diabetes, where their pancreas is still able to produce insulin, and uh, so there is some functional uh, reserve still, uh, we can also use oral drugs. And most people who are, have got type 2 diabetes are either managed on diet or managed uh, on oral drugs uh, most of the time. Some go on to insulin, but, but most, uh, initially at least, uh, do not. And they work by multiple different mechanisms, and more drugs are being found all the time. Uh, three important groups, and there are some groups which have begun to fall out of favour. The first one are ones that stimulate the pancreas directly to release more insulin. And an important group of those, uh, one of the oldest but still around, is a drug, a drug class called the sulfonylureas. Then there's a group of drugs, and, but in particular the most important one because it's standard uh, treatment almost everywhere in the world, uh, is something called metformin. Uh, and they, redu- they reduce, they don't affect the pancreas directly, but what they do is they decrease uh, glucose production in the liver. They do other things as well, but that's the, their most important effect. And the third uh, area uh, is a group of drugs um, which stop the gut Uh, from producing enzymes uh, which reduce glucose by several steps uh, and stimulate the pancreas. And uh, I'll go through each of these in slightly more detail. But there are others. So there's quite a lot of different ways you can achieve what you're trying to achieve, which is to get blood glucose back to normal level. There isn't just one route. And sometimes one drug class suits one person and doesn't suit another. Now, the way in which these drugs were developed uh, is, like much of science, uh, often quite accidental. And I'm taking two examples uh, of largely accidental um, discovery. Uh, The first one for metformin, the first standard line drug for almost everyone with type 2 diabetes. This drug, which comes originally uh, by several removes from uh, French lilac, also known as goat's rue, this drug was used in traditional medical practice for very long periods of time. And uh, people uh, looked at derivatives from it, and what they found is some of the derivatives reduced sugar in rabbits, This was just an observation. There was no reason to understand how it happened. And from this, eventually, the drug class metformin that metformin comes from was produced. And they've been used in diabetes since, uh, essentially, uh, the late 1950s. A second drug class that was produced by accident was the sulfonylureas, the other, one of the other major drug classes. And this was, uh, intru- this was um, discovered by chance when uh, a scientist was uh, testing sulfonylurea antibiotics, which are still used but were very common recently, against typhoid, in fact. And what they found was that this drug class also had effects on the body, which led to glucose going down. And from this group of antibiotics derived this group of drugs which stimulate the pancreas. So these are just, in a sense, chance observations for people who are actually looking for other things completely. And then there are drugs, uh, for example, this group, the DPP4I drugs, which are a relatively recent drug class, which are produced by the way that most people understand science to work, following a conventional scientific pathway. Quite a lot of drugs in this class now. Uh, They work indirectly, and what they do is they uh, prevent the breakdown of the enzyme enzyme group incretins, uh, and these have an effect on glucose, uh, both by uh, stimulation of uh, insulin release and inhibiting another uh, uh, important uh, enzyme called glucagon. 
Both of those have the effect of lowering glucose. So several different drug classes work by different areas, some of them accidentally discovered, some of them discovered by science along conventional routes. Now, if you've got type 1 or type 2 diabetes, there are several major risks without good glucose control. And these, and I'll go through each of these in turn. These include uh, heart disease and heart attacks, stroke, eye disease and blindness, skin infections and peripheral vascular disease, nerve damage, kidney damage, and serious infections. There are others as well. These are serious diseases, if not properly managed. But again, there is good news. There has been a really very substantial reduction in the complications from diabetes. I've got here some US data. I'm going to show you some other data from elsewhere uh, later. And if you look at almost all of these risks and compare now to 1995, there has been a reduction, and in some cases, a massive reduction in the amount of risk that people have got over time, as we have got better at managing these uh, conditions. Start off with diabetic retinopathy. Uh, retin this is something where uh, the blood vessels in particular in the back of the eye are damaged and you get some exudates in the back of the eye. Here you can see a relatively mild case. That this yellow uh, shouldn't be here. Here you can see a very severe case with blood uh, flame hemorrhages and various exudates around here. If these tend to happen in people after prolonged, uh, not very well uh, managed diabetes, some eye changes are relatively common in many people, but if they go on for long enough, they start to threaten vision. And diabetes remains one of the major causes of uh, loss of sight. What we do know from data that are relatively old but are, uh, haven't really been bettered uh, is that if you control blood sugar more effectively, if you basically take the blood sugar down, the rate of retinal change progressions uh, substantially slows down. So this, this, uh, this, this graph is from a relatively old but a very important study that compared conventional treatment showing the percentage of patients over years who got eye disease and those who had intensive treatment where the eye disease slowed down really very substantially. So treatment makes a difference and if you look more recently uh, at data from follow-up from this what you see is that this difference is maintained over time. So this is not just a temporary effect. So control of glucose is good for eye outcomes. But, and there's a but in this, the difficulty is balancing control of glucose, which helps to reduce the eye getting worse, and the risk that people, which means that as the glucose goes up over time, what's called glycosylated hemoglobin, which is a measure of medium-term uh, glucose levels, goes up, the proportion of people with eye disease goes up. But the more tightly you control the glucose, the more likely it is that people will get hypos, which are these things where they get very low blood sugar, which can damage particularly the brain and can be very dangerous. So you're always walking a tightrope between too tight glucose control with the risk of hypos and not tight enough, meaning you're going to go on to get problems with the eye. Now, for those who are unfortunate and go on to get eye disease, uh, there are two uh, broad areas of treatment. There are others, but these are probably now the most important ones. The first one, which is actually relatively long-standing, is laser therapy. And what people do is a relatively crude, actually, thing where lasers are fired in a pattern around the eye. All these white dots are laser blasts, and they're there to stop blood vessels uh, from proliferating and damaging the site. More recent treatment, um, 
is uh, injecting uh, a drug class, the anti-VEGF drug class, into the eye. Uh, this looks incredibly painful. Actually, it isn't, let me assure you. Uh, I'm assured by people who've had it done. I uh, haven't had it done myself. Uh, and um, this uh, also, this uh, usually an antibody, uh, slows down uh, the development of blood vessels in the eye uh, and can also uh, reduce, uh, or uh, re- in some cases reduce and, uh, and certainly slow down diabetic eye disease. So there are things you can do. Clearly, though, what you want to do is not get to that state in the first place, which is where the tight glucose control comes in. The next uh, group of things to consider are foot ulcers. And these sound trivial. I want to be clear that they are not. So at any given time in the UK, around 60,000 people with diabetes have foot ulcers. And it is actually a bad prognostic sign. That means that if people have got them, the outlook for a whole lot of other areas of diabetes uh, is less good. Uh, They're a big issue. They probably cost uh, around a billion pounds a year. These are really non-serious, trivial sums. And if they go go on for long enough, they can get badly infected and people uh, may have to go on to have amputations, which is a bad situation. If people have an amputation of the foot because of a foot ulcer that's gone too far, only about half survive more than two years. It's not that they die of the amputation, but it's a sign that the diabetes has got out of control. As with the eye disease... Good glucose control will reduce amputations significantly in type 2 diabetes. And there are various studies that do this. I'm not going to go through all the numbers. But uh, so like the eye, the key to this in the long term is good glucose control. And then when people get foot infections, aggressive treatment with antibiotics uh, and good foot uh, care uh, with podiatrists and others. So there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done to protect people's feet in diabetes. There is a very considerable variation in the rate of amputation of uh, bits of feet or feet across the UK. And this worries all of us because this shouldn't really be happening to the degree that it is. And there may be multiple reasons why certain parts of the country have much higher amputation rates, which I would see as a sign of failure to some degree, at least in the short to medium term. These include a delayed diagnosis of diabetes, so people just aren't picked up early enough. Less good glucose control over time. Less good foot care, so people aren't looking after their feet properly, aren't helping to look at the shoes and so on. Delayed presentation with foot problems. People just haven't realised that this is a very serious problem. They think, let's not bother the doctor. Less effective use of non-invasive treatments. And there are a variety of treatments that can be used, including things like uh, artery um, uh, bypasses. Uh, and local surgical practice. So lots of different things can contribute to this. But wherever you see high amputation rates, you should be asking uh, what's gone wrong. And then there's disease of the kidney. Uh, And diabetes is one of the leading causes of kidney disease and renal failure. Uh, Again, tight glucose control probably delays the onset of this disease, but probably not its progression once you've got it. So Tight, you know, what I've said is tight glucose control, tight glucose control, tight glucose control. But once you've got this, uh, it won't probably make a big difference to the, to the renal failure. It may to other things. What does make a difference, however, is controlling blood pressure. And really strong control of blood pressure in people who've got diabetes is critical to help protect their kidneys in the long run. And then there's infections. 
And there's a very significant increase of risk of infections of all sorts. Um, I, what I've shown here is data from the urinary tract, and this is slightly this is not particularly surprising. People who got diabetes tend to have more sugar in their urine. That's good for bugs, and therefore they get more urinary tract infections. What's probably less uh, obvious why it happens is, for example, they have much higher rates of complications if, for example, they get flu. So if you've got diabetes and you have uh, influenza, your chance of getting a proper lung infection afterwards, a dangerous lung infection, is significantly higher than if you don't have diabetes. One of the reasons that we recommend strongly that people with diabetes get a, a influenza vaccination to reduce their risk of flu in the first place. So infections are another group. And finally, uh, there are other things, but the final one I want to consider is cardiovascular disease. And here, actually, uh, the, the, the news is both good and bad. The bad news is that patients with type 1 diabetes and with type 2 diabetes have significantly higher rates of both heart attack and stroke than people of the same age over time who do not have those. The good news is that if you compare what's happened since uh, the turn of the century, there has been a substantial reduction in mortality from heart disease and stroke. And this is a study that came out very recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, 36,800 patients uh, with type 1 diabetes, almost 500,000 patients with type 2 diabetes. And what that demonstrates really clearly is a 42% reduction in mortality in people with type 1 and a 46% reduction in mortality in people with type 2. We are getting a lot better at managing this. Now, in contrast to the other things I've talked about, which are largely about glucose control, for the cardiovascular disease, the big things are not glucose control, actually. There doesn't seem to be a very strong signal from glucose control. The big things are controlling all the other things. Stopping smoking. If you smoke and have diabetes, you are really asking for trouble. There are multiple problems that will happen very quickly, unfortunately. But also blood pressure control, uh, cholesterol lowering, these ACE inhibitor drugs, um, beta blockers, which come on, uh, sometimes useful, aspirin, Exercise, simple thing, but exercise in diabetes is a very, very important part of the management of diabetes. And more, more uh, modern treatments like stenting of the coronary arteries, which I talked about in a previous talk. So the combination of these things, and there are many others, all based on small scientific advances all stacked up, have led to substantial improvements in diabetes mortality. And if you look at these graphs, I see no sign of them flattening out. I'm expecting mortality from diabetes to continue to fall over the next two decades. So by attention to detail and incremental scientific advances, diabetes mortality overall, not just cardiovascular, is falling. So all-cause mortality has gone down by about 30% uh, over time, uh, and type 2 diabetes has gone down by about 21% over 15 years. So there is good news in diabetes, actually, quite substantially good news. Things are definitely improving. Now, can we do things to actually uh, treat diabetes, to take people who've got diabetes and stop them having diabetes? And the answer is yes, in a few cases, or some cases, or some cases, a lot of cases, depending on which group you're talking about, if they've got type 2 diabetes. Currently, we do not have ways we can treat people with type 1 diabetes, although I'm reasonably confident that someone giving a similar talk in 30 years will give a different answer. And at this point, for type 2 diabetes, uh, the key thing is to lose weight. If people lose weight, many people who've got type 2 diabetes will go back to not having diabetes. 
An extreme version of this uh, is what's called bariatric surgery. And this is where, by a number of methods, there are several surgical ways of doing it, but by essentially re-plumbing the stomach and the upper gut, we actually bypass the stomach uh, or um, uh, reduce the amount of gut which actually is absorbing things. And what we find is that this surgery, it leads to weight loss, but even before it leads to weight loss, it leads to dramatic improvements in glucose control, which once people have had the surgery, they no longer have diabetes. And in many cases, probably the majority of cases actually, that improvement is sustained. Now this is going to be some combination of losing weight and the fact that the gut hormones are being uh, shifted around by the way uh, that uh, um, it's, it's, it's managed uh, surgically. But what this does demonstrate is that under certain circumstances, type 2 diabetes actually can be cured, although clearly losing weight by non-dramatic methods is much better. There are risks to bariatric surgery. It's not something you'd undertake unless you absolutely had to. All of us have seen complications of it. Finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the public health on this. The prevalence of, diabetes, of obesity uh, is now substantial in many parts of the world. The UK has got significant amounts of obesity. The darker the colour, the more there is. But we're not the, uh, we don't have the greatest in the world. Uh, the USA, South Africa, uh, Middle East, all areas where obesity rates are even higher than our own. But they have risen everywhere. And if you look at fasting blood glucose, unsurprisingly, that is higher in many of the areas where there is both obesity and you've got a group who are genetically predisposed to get diabetes, which includes people of Middle Eastern origin and people of African heritage. So the rates of diabetes globally are going up very substantially. These are some data that came out um, a couple of weeks ago uh, and got a lot of media attention because people, they made the point that within the wealthy countries, England was, to use the newspaper treatment of this, uh, one of the fattest countries in the world, among the wealthy countries. And what they did with this is rather scary projection up where the England rate continues to rise. Actually, I think that's, the data do not support that personally. But what we'd, certainly it is the case is that here in the UK, we do have significantly more obesity than most other wealthy countries. And it would it'll take Spain, France, Switzerland, Italy uh, many years to catch up with us if they carry on their current trajectory. It'll take uh, Korea or Japan, for example, many decades. So we have a particular problem among the wealthy countries. And this is in particularly uh, true among children and adolescents, which is a group we need to worry about a lot. Once you put weight on, as anyone who's found this, Taking it off again is really difficult. So the key is to try and not put it on in the first place. Now, there are two sides to this. Exercise, which is what people all tend to think about and what indeed much of industry would like you to think about, uh, and food. And my final points on this are that I think that we, the public, need to engage with the food industry on this. This is a photograph I took last weekend at my local supermarket. It's a perfectly ordinary supermarket. Every single thing on that shelf has sugar added, substantial amounts of sugar added. Much of it is marketed as healthy. All of this is straight sweets. Next aisle along. Is it surprising that people who actually like having sweet things go into a supermarket and eat lots, large amounts of sugar, which will go on to increase their weight and will go on to increase their, their risk of diabetes? Uh, answer, pretty obviously, no. 
But clearly what we need to do is balance three different things. Pleasure, we want people to continue to enjoy sweet things, enjoy treats. Profits, we're not trying to force supermarkets to lose money. That would be stupid, fighting the market very seldom works. Uh, and health. And in my view, they are not in any way mutually incompatible. All we need to do is find a way where all three of those can be maintained simultaneously. It undoubtedly, though, needs a very different approach to the one we have at the moment. Now, one of the things that is a barrier uh, to this uh, is that um, uh, noises off from some bits of the media do not tend to support making public health interventions. Uh, I really wouldn't try and get all your diabetes advice from the newspaper headlines. I've unfairly singled out the Daily Express just because they put it on the front page. Uh, there are many, uh, many others which actually give equally misleading. Only one of these statements, all of these statements have a little bit of truth in them, but only one of them is not misleading, and it's this one. I really do, you know, if anybody thinks that eating chocolate can beat diabetes, uh, then they really probably uh, have not had any education at all. But what this means is because there tends to be a lot of pressure from the media not to have state intervention, you'll immediately get cries of nanny state, uh, people, politicians who represent the public, can often shy away from what is a difficult subject. And that is because nobody wants to be the person who takes people's treats away from them. Why should you? And, and I absolutely agree with that. I want to be clear about that. And there is a ladder of state intervention for all uh, public health interventions, starting up with leave it up to individuals, don't worry about it, which should be the default. Inform them that there's a problem, but don't do more. Engage with industry, moving all the way up to taxing heavily and banning. And I think as a public, we have to make a decision about whether we wish to um, uh, move up this ladder of regulation or not. This is a public decision. It's not for the medical profession to determine this. This is for the public through polit politicians to determine this. But I think it is really clear that diabetes is a very substantial problem, has very substantial health effects, and is rising. And therefore, I think we need to look at this reasonably seriously. And if we're going to do it reasonably seriously, we're going to need multiple interventions, all of which will have a modest, but if you put them all together, incrementally, a big impact. Uh, we don't yet know the optimal mix. I want to be clear about that. The data on this is much less clear than, for example, for smoking, where the answer is don't smoke at all. Uh, this is a much harder area. But examples of possible state interventions include things like sugar tax on fizzy drinks, traffic light labelling of foods, restricting direct adver advertising to children, and restricting fast food outlets near schools. But there are many others. They would also be on the exercise size side. In my view... The best way to do things is lots of small interventions that don't have too bad an impact on people's lives than two or three big ones that they find a lot more difficult to adjust to. And the aim, and I, want, I cannot stress this too strongly, is not to reduce enjoyment, only to reduce unnecessary uh, energy intake. Here are two things I quite like, Greek yoghurt and uh, Coke. Uh, the difference between a zero-fat and an ordinary Greek yoghurt is substantial in terms of the amount of fat I would eat. They basically taste almost the same. Uh, the difference between this one, 54 grams of sugar, this is what you're drinking if you drink a bottle of full-fat Coke, uh, and this one, the Diet Coke, is substantial if you have lots of them. So lots of things we can do where we can enjoy things just as much but eat much less energy, whether it's in fat uh, or in sugar. Finally... 
What are the new directions in science for treatment and prevention? And these are occurring all the time. I haven't majored on these, largely because I do not know, and nobody honestly knows, which of these is actually going to be in widespread use in 20 to 30 years, and which of these are uh, essentially very interesting science that is broadly speculative. All of them are used a little bit in very niche indications. There's islet cell transplant. Remember, these are the cells that produce insulin. And there are situations it is possible to take some of those cells and transplant them, but there are significant problems with uh, getting that uh, properly to work. There's having a full pancreas transplant, and that again is used in a limited number of situations, particularly with people who've got complete renal failure. Again, significant issues around this, but this is used already in some situations. We're getting better at it the whole time. We know that the early stage of type 1 diabetes is probably an immune phenomenon, autoimmune phenomenon, and therefore the hope is if we can start to spot someone getting type 1 diabetes early, we could actually intervene to stop that process before it gets to the point they've lost all of the cells in their pancreas. And again, there are several lines of research trying to improve this. There are low-calorie diets to put uh, type 2 diabetes into remission. That's probably a relatively obvious one. Uh, And then finally, the idea of an artificial pancreas, something which actually produces insulin in response to sensors, uh, which actually much more closely mimics what would happen if you had a pancreas that was behaving normally. And this one actually seems to me not a particularly big, difficult uh, technological leap. Insulin is relatively straightforward. Uh, Injecting is relatively straightforward. Sensing glucose is relatively straightforward. And these days, all of us wear on our belts or in our pockets computers that are easily capable of doing this. So all of these are areas where we could move on. But with diabetes, I think my summary would be, here is a serious disease. It has risen substantially, so it is now one of the biggest diseases groups in the UK and virtually every area of the world. This is not just a rich world problem. It is largely preventable if we could reverse global weight back to where it was some decades ago if a type 2 diabetes... We are getting a lot better at uh, preventing the complications of diabetes or delaying them and at treating them when they're there, but it remains a serious disease. And I think we have to make a decision as a society whether we wish to take on the minor or occasionally moderate inconveniences to do with trying to reduce energy intake for the whole population or not. But if we do not, the probability is that obesity rates in this country and globally will continue to rise and therefore diabetes with all its complications will also continue to rise and that of course uh, would be a very serious problem. Thank you very much.